Okay, so we're going to talk about octopuses. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's a couple of things that have recently happened. One is we went to an octopus farm called Kanaloa Octopus Farm in Hawaii on the Big Island. And another is that Roxy read a book about octopuses. Yes, inspired by the first event. Exactly. And so brief story about the first event. So it's called an octopus farm, which makes it sound like you're going to be eating the octopuses. By the way, fun fact, it is octopuses, not octopi, because it is from a Greek word rather than a Latin one. Or so, is it the reverse? Uh, I think it's that way around, but, you know, I guess we could look it up later. So the octopus farm is not a farm. It's actually a place where they are doing research to figure out if they can get the octopuses to breed in captivity, because apparently this is a thing that is not, it's currently not possible. So they get the octopuses to lay their eggs and they fertilize them and then the octopus larvae start. And so far they've managed to get the larvae to survive, I think it's 13 days. And they're pretty confident that once they get them to survive 30 days, they'll be able to actually breed octopuses in captivity, which could have implications for being able to actually have farmed octopus. So then wild caught octopus wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be fished to deplete wild populations. Um, so yeah, but it's taken them like 10 years to get to 13 days. So the guy told us that at this rate, he thinks in another decade or two, they'll be able to breed an octopus in, in captivity. So anyway, that was a little bit of backstory. Oh, and at this octopus farm, you can put your hand in the tanks and the, and the octopus is kind of, uh, wrap their tentacles around your hands. Well, some of them, they had varying personalities. You had some who were completely uninterested in engaging with the humans even when food was at stake not steak though <laughs> crab crab, crab that is their that is their favorite food and others were you know loved being the life of the party one in particular do you remember that one's name uh no but so, so, yeah i mean some of them were very shy some of them were sort of like seemed to enjoy touching the humans mm -hmm. and then there was one that was i would say almost aggressive like it would wrap his tentacles around you and they like, try to like pull you in mm -hmm. and these are quite small so right. it wasn't going to be able to actually pull you into the mm -hmm. water but that was the kind of vibe and then that, that one started squirting at everyone trying to trying to peel these arms off off you these suckers off you as he's squirting everywhere yeah and you peel it off with one hand and then it like immediately suckers onto <laughs> the hand you're trying to pull off um anyway so that was that was a little bit of backstory and then yeah, so then, then you've been learning more about I have, creature. yes. So the visit to the octopus farm caused me to search for a book about octopuses, and the one that came up, it's called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith. Now, this book actually came from, as you know, whenever I'm looking for a non-depressing book, I try to find a non-fiction book from the Royal Society Prizes for Science books, because those tend to be a lot less depressing than books around, well... The current state of the environment, for example. Correct. correct. So, so what was something you learned about the octopus? Well, it's interesting. The author starts out the book saying that he is a, a philosopher, and I'd give the book three and a half stars, I'd say, three and a half, four stars. Absolutely some interesting facts, but definitely not one of those drop everything and read it now situations. 
and he opens up. But good news, dear listener, because we're going to summarize for you you now, so you don't have to read it. Exactly. At least give you the most interesting tidbits and the recommended YouTube searches to do after this. He, so he claims to be a philosopher and he starts out with this really interesting concept of, of the organisms that have very developed nervous systems and cognitive systems based both on their behavior and then also the structures that we see within their bodies. You have humans at one side of the evolutionary tree and cephalopods, octopuses in particular, but cephalopods in general, which includes octopuses, squids, and cuttlefish. For those of you who have not heard of cuttlefish or have spent much time on YouTube looking at cuttlefish, I highly recommend you do that because they are absolutely fascinating, but we'll get to them. We'll get to them shortly. So octopuses or cephalopods and humans are incredibly apart on the evolutionary tree. So if we're trying to think about if we were to encounter an alien with intelligence, their intelligence would evolve in a completely different way from our intelligence, from our nervous system. And so the octopus is the closest thing to alien intelligence that we can encounter on this planet. Pretty cool concept. Mm. Yeah, and I guess just just to throw in there some facts that I'm going to try to remember, but you know, when when do we share a, a last common ancestor with you know the octopus? I'm guessing it's kind of Cambrian explosion, probably you know n- nearly a billion years ago, something like that, like like high hundreds millions of years ago. Does that sound about right? Certainly less than a billion. Certainly in the large numbers of millions. <laughs> narrow it down. I think it's, I think it's like greater than half a billion years ago. Which, when you think about, you know, think about like a chimpanzee or something. Mm-hmm. You know, we share a common ancestor with them just a couple, of, just you know, five million years ago or something like that. So that's actually pretty recent. And so a lot of the structures around intelligence that we have, uh, absolutely, that we share with chimps are analogous. They're not just absolutely. analogous. They're they're homologous. They're I mean, actually chimps, the same structures. Birds. Also very intelligent, as there's a lot of research coming out on. So, yeah, birds are pretty similar to us, frankly. Very different from the octopus. The The last shared common a- ancestor with the octopus was a flat worm. <laughs> flat worm in the ocean that explored, really. They don't yeah. really know very much about it. Right. So, anyway, so they're a very different... Because we split up a very long time ago, mm-hmm. they're, they're, the way their intelligence is has been designed by evolution is is just very different exactly in their nervous system in general but maybe backing up so what the author does towards the beginning is explore the beginnings of the nervous system so you think about single-celled organisms communicating with one another in water and they began communicating with one another via chemical signaling and that pretty much stayed the mechanism and continues to be the mechanism that we use today. We had to take the seawater and put it inside of us. And now we have all of these cells communicating between one another within the seawater that is our body. And of course you had these specialized cells develop nerve cells, which can be very, very long. And they also, they use electrical impulses to have these signals traverse this long cell very quickly. But then at the intercept between these different cells you still have chemical signaling so it's this interesting evolution of cells intracell or intercell communication evolving into intra-organism communication which is what happened at that time so communication really did begin in the sea like all of life okay so what was something interesting you learned in the book then (laughs) 
About... Not that that wasn't interesting, but it's kind of borderline interesting. <laughs> what is something interesting that I learned in the book? So, more broadly, understanding how the human brain works. So we have we have this nervous system, and more organisms without intelligence in the way we think of it have nervous systems. That is that's an uncommon feature. But the brain became this centralized space and, you know, how, how did consciousness arise from this centralized cluster of nerve cells? And frankly, what is consciousness? I mean, what, how, do, how do you define consciousness? Well, I mean, that could be the subject of a whole long discussion, but um, I, think, I think consciousness, we're having a subjective experience of consciousness. And because I'm a human having that experience and I know what that feels like, I can assume that other humans have a similar experience. Just like when I see the color red, I can assume, but I can never know for sure that I'm seeing something that looks similar. But then when you, when you extend that to other animals, it's really, it's really frankly kind of guesswork what that, uh, what that subjective experience uh, is like. And, you know, you kind of, People try and do all these clever experiments to try to uh, to try to say, oh, birds are conscious, for example. And so they had uh, an experiment with crows where they um, where they gave the crow the um, they gave the crow a problem and then they made them wait a little bit and then they then they gave them the opportunity to solve it. And so they said, well, the crow is holding it in their memory, and there and then when it comes to solving the problem they are recalling that time when they were given this problem to solve and now they get to solve it and so but therefore birds must be conscious and clearly the clearly that sounds reasonable but also the flaw in it is uh maybe that maybe the bird has just some memory storage structure in its brain where that uh where that useful information is going and then it's coming back out at the at the right time i mean you know, insects respond to stimuli, and most people don't think insects are conscious. Correct. But they might be. Who knows? Correct. So, you know, it's it's very difficult to observe an organism. You know, you look at a uh, you look at a uh, chimp where you paint a red dot on the middle of uh, on its face, and you show it a mirror, and it points to its it takes its finger and points to its own face knowing that that's a mirror therefore you could say well therefore knowing that that is its itself so does that mean it's having a conscious experience who knows right so a theory of consciousness that you could have proposed as well thinking back to kula dasa the mind illuminated and this actually did come up in this book so the global workspace theory of human consciousness at least which is a subset of subjective reality see this becomes the question that the author explores i'm not i i the author I'm not necessarily, I'm not going to use the word consciousness to refer to octopuses, for example, because that's such a loaded term. So I will talk about what is their subjective reality or what is the, what hints might we have about their subjective reality based on the nature of their nervous system. But going back to human consciousness for a moment, the global workspace theory is a theory that consciousness, which again is a subset of the types of subjective reality that you can have, is when activities that are occurring either outside of the world but also activities generated by your person are being 
passed and recorded to this global workspace. So this global workspace is aware of sensory inputs coming in. It's also aware of actions that are being taken. And that global workspace is your consciousness. Now, that doesn't mean that it is exclusive or exhaustive, right? So we are breathing. That is an action that our body is taking. But that action is not being recorded up in our global workspace. And so that is not an action that is part of our consciousness, is part of our subconscious. But then the existence of this global workspace mechanism would be a definition of consciousness that at least has been in the consciousness thought, body of thought, at least per the author of this book. Well, maybe just to challenge that a second though. So if I'm an insect, then maybe I'm going to eat something, eat a piece of plant leaf, and then the fact that I've eaten that piece of plant leaf is uploaded into some some storage in my brain uh, or, or my neural structures, I should say, to make me stop eating plant leaves when I'm full. So I've taken an input, I've done something, and then it's all been uploaded to my global workspace. Does that does it that make me conscious? It hasn't necessarily been. So to give an example here, a lot of animals, birds included, they have different parts of their brains operate have different specialties birds will approach food or a problem in a particular direction because their their eyes are tied to different parts of their brains which have different specialties okay what's this got to do with an octopus so an octopus there's very little evidence that the octopus has this global workspace. So the one thing about the book is you'll notice that the octopus in the origins of concepts, it's just, a, it's an element. So most of the book is not about the octopus, but some mm. of it certainly is. So the octopus, there is little, well, the octopus has a brain. It also has, so of course, a lot of neurons in its suckers and in its arms. And not only does it have sensing rich sensing, um, you know, sensory neurons in its arms, but also independent control neurons in its arms as well. So when the brain, so thinking about what is it like to be an octopus, it's kind of like your brain might say, oh, I'm going to go explore over there. But it's, it, it's like having a small the, group the of workers. The arm's got some autonomy, you're saying. Yeah, the arm's arm got basically some autonomy. basically like tasting exactly. and feeling and yeah, touching and, and making around, its own decisions. Exactly, and the arm is deciding how to move around in a way that the brain isn't completely controlling. Now, mm. we don't exactly know what that feels like. It obviously feels, it's quite different because unlike our digestive system, which we can't quite see or experience all the time, you know, the, the octopus can see its arm kind of doing its own thing, exploring this cave. The other thing yeah, that the that's octopus... interesting because I'm just thinking about that for a second. So we tend to think of we tend to think of the eye. We tend we tend to identify with there being an eye, and actually, that's that's a you know when you meditate, you you kind of learn that there's lots of different mental processes going on, and um, which one of those is is the eye? The eye is more a collection of of them, and I guess the the illusion that I feel like I tend to experience is that. The, the eye is this collection of, of mental process involving thought and experience and feeling and, and so on. Something like my guts doesn't necessarily feel like part of the eye that I identify with. You know, I think about, you know, my stomach as opposed to me. And so if I have a stomach ache, I don't think, I don't say I'm aching. 
I say, you know, my stomach is aching. So well, I wonder whether... Well, if you have whether... heartbreak or if you have anxiety, sometimes those feelings in your stomach do get wrapped up into the story or your emotional explanation of what's going on. And so it's very hard for us to really separate those, much harder than we think it is at times. Yes. No, it's definitely it's definitely more complicated than, than we think it is. Yeah. Uh, well, but that's I guess a good lead-in to a future with... episode. <laughs> but I, I guess that where, I was, where I was just going is thinking about that with analogy to the octopus. Mm-hmm. It's probably... You know, if there is some sense of I in the octopus's brain, then maybe the arms feel a little bit more like our stomach, where it's like, oh, the, the, you know, my stomach is hurting, my arm is going off doing something, you know, and it's going to report back, and it's part of my body, but it's not something that I'm necessarily fully in control of, mm-hmm, like the stomach. Mm-hmm. There was a patient who suffered... I think it was a brain tumor or something like that. She had some brain damage and she was blind. Couldn't see anything. She should see some very vague light, dark, but not enough to be able to identify anything in a room. And yet when you took this woman and you had her walk through a room filled with obstacles, she would miss all the obstacles. So there was a part of her brain that was seeing and interacting with her limbs to in, in order to move and yet this woman was unaware that she was able to see or how she was missing those obstacles so from that situation is she the one detecting the obstacles and weaving her way through them or has that brain injury resulted in a system where now i she is now doing something, you know, now are there two different eyes? Like, is that now not part of an eye? Because we would think of ourselves. It's like, oh, I am able to, you know, walk around these, you know, that, that's not quite the digestive system. We think about that something that's under our conscious control. Yeah. Our walking. Yeah. Did, did she, did it say anything about how she experienced that? Did, did it feel like, did it feel like a sense of intuition she was using to navigate the room? It didn't or, go into detail. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that makes me think about, that makes me think about, yeah, just like how much of what we do, you know, we, we have this, we have this conscious brain and we think that's the thing making all the decisions, uh, but actually that's the overlying narrative, right? Like our subconscious 100%. is making pretty much all of the decisions, uh, you know, who we love, who, where we go, what kind of things we invest in pretty much every decision we make it's actually all kind of subconscious and then we've got this conscious mind that puts this narrative on top that justifies that comes up with some justification for why we consciously made that decision absolutely absolutely i mean this is the corpus callosum experiment 100 percent. or these these patients where you not only create a story to explain what's going on you believe it i mean you're completely unaware that you were creating a story in in this artificial test environment so with the octopus unclear if that's what's you know what exactly that feels like something else that there is evidence for is that the suckers can see so for a number of these cephalopods it's not just the eyes that can see but there are some color detection mechanisms in all of the nerves around the body such that the octopus can um blend in can camouflage right right well i mean that that makes intuitive sense because when you when you see an octopus like go over to a rock or something and then immediately camouflage itself mm-hmm. like that doesn't look like a centrally controlled process right where where it's Correct. like trying to think which bits to mm-hmm. change you know that 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 makes sense as a 
as a distributed process where each little part of the body is figuring out what is the colour of the rock behind me and turning to that colour. Yeah, and then of course there's a pattern element to it as well. So is there some communication where it's just it's just loose? Is there some feedback of those general covers right. back to some centralized right. source? And what does that feel like? I mean... Yeah, very unclear. interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, so on the topic of color changing, this was also interesting. So something interesting I said is just cuttlefish in general. The... I mean, I'm amazed that more people aren't aware of what these things look like. They look like UFOs with these crazy tentacles coming out of their mouth at the front of them. And the way they travel is with this skirt, this kind of floating skirt that propels them. And the largest cuttlefish is three feet long, which is absolutely enormous. And they are much better color changers than even octopuses. Just very, very impressive. And the mechanism for color changing, it took them a while to figure this out, but it's incredible incredibly complicated they have three layers of skin essentially so the first layer has all of these structures that include the first layer has three colors and different species have different colors so i think a common of the largest octopus i think the colors are red yellow and this kind of brownish brick color and so you have these structures that have these three different color beads and then these tiny muscles that can squeeze these different color beads thereby exposing the color bead or not exposing the color bead and of course you have millions of these over the size of this cuttlefish and that's just the first layer and then the second layer has is essentially a, a series of lenses that reflect light but they don't just reflect back the light coming in they actually you know, use these lenses to reflect back potentially a subset of the light that's coming in. And so they're, they're able to control, you know, what light they're reflecting. And then the third layer of skin beneath that is just a straight reflection backwards. So typically that's reflecting back white or some, you know, somewhere in the scale from nothing to, to, to white light. And so the combination of these three layers of skin work together with this fine muscle tune to have, you know, rapidly changing color patterns and often covering the the colors of the rainbow or, or quite a few of them and the interesting thing about cuttlefish is they are incredibly they are not social creatures so we've evolved this incredibly complicated method of we have these complex brains to support our complicated social systems and the same thing goes for chimps and baboons and just different primates as well. We have these complicated social systems that we have to keep track of and we communicate in various ways, humans with speech and with written speech being a very complicated form of that, but you have these solitary cephalopods who have these incredibly robust data mechanisms, just rich information mechanisms and cuttlefish aren't, yes they can camouflage, but a lot of the patterning that goes on is not for camouflage. It's these changing color patterns that seem to, that, that are not random, right? That do not appear to be random and it appear to contain large amounts of information within them, but we don't know why. Like, why did they evolve that complicated system? Something far beyond what was needed for camouflage. Hmm. That's interesting. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe that's more evidence that it's a simulation. Absolutely. Definitely a simulation. 
octopuses have been documented doing some pretty interesting things. In captivity, yes. There seem to be indications that octopuses know when they're in captivity. And it's quite interesting. The author talks about a number of studies where the octopuses aren't demonstrating the kind of intelligence consistently that you would imagine. But when you read the details of the study, it appears that the octopuses just don't really want to participate in the experiment, particularly when they're being fed squid, for example, which they don't really like eating. They like crab. So there's all these examples of octopuses squirting people, squirting particular people. They recognize people. There's a certain lab technician they really don't like. They'll squirt that person whenever they show up. And, you know, he actually found, the author found two instances, two instances of octopuses. Now there's tons of examples that we hear about, about octopuses who escape from their cage, sneak out of their, their tank, their aquarium at night, go into another aquarium to get food and sneak back without being detected, right? So finding different mechanisms for getting food. An interesting story is in two different aquariums, there was a particular octopus that would shoot its water at, the ele at a light, shorting out the electrical system. And these two octopuses did this repeatedly, ultimately being too expensive for the... They had to keep replacing the lights. Well, no, they ultimately freed the octopuses because <laughs> it was so expensive to keep replacing the lights at this place. So they was... could have just like moved them further away from the switch. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know, I don't know. Well, they were, I think they were shooting lights in the area. Whatever it was, it was resulted in the freedom of the octopuses. So that was definitely, you know, might have been some impressive intelligence. Yeah, impressive. One last interesting thing about octopuses and cephalopods in general, the human brain, so complex brains are used to learn often, right? And so there is, a, there is an assumption that those organisms will be around for a long time to make use of that learning. So they, they gather input from the environment and then they maintain that input and then alter their behavior in the future. And here we have octopuses and certainly octopuses and likely some squids and cephalopods with fairly complicated brain systems and they only live for one to two years. So why did this complicated nervous system evolve when there isn't opportunity really for learning? What can they learn in one to two years in so few cycles and only in one birthing cycle? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're if you're hunting crabs, you know, multiple times a day for a year, and that's what you do, you can imagine learning things about that in that time frame. Absolutely, but a lot of a lot of animals hunt things for a lot more than a year, and they have a lot less complicated nervous systems to do that. It's a lot more instinct based. Yeah. Interesting thing, though, about the so so as I mentioned, octopuses have female octopuses give birth once and then they die basically it's just so taxing on their body and that is an evolutionary strategy right mm -hmm. so if you are likely to die or be killed early the extreme version of that is you know an animal would evolve to just give birth once as much as possible and then just die in that process because if you if if you give birth fewer times that you can give birth multiple times in the future but you're likely to be killed then you know, that doesn't really make sense. 
evolutionarily and the octopus so octopuses used to have cephalopods the octopus is the only one of the cephalopods without any solid structures and so the octopus lost all of its solid structures which enables it to be like water essentially squeeze into a hole the size of its eye but also makes it vulnerable vulnerable to predators exactly and so you had this competing pressure and then also the lack of shell has enabled it to develop a lot of nerves to have a lot of fine control of its suckers for example if you have a big carapace you can't move around quite as much yeah so you had this dual evolutionary pressure of it's very vulnerable so it can't live very long and yet it had this elaborate nervous system developed in part because that lack of shell enables it to move around a lot more and develop that nervous system. So here you have a complicated brain and it doesn't live for very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, you know, evolution has all of these different, these different local optima, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, one, one strategy is to be, you know, like, like a, like a triceratops, right? Like be dumb and impossible to eat, right? I mean, I don't know that they were dumb, but I'm assuming. Um, but another is to be kind of like nimble and dart around and be intelligent, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what the octopus's chosen strategy is. Anything else before we close this one out? No, I think, I think that's, that's about it. So there you have it, some musings about the octopus. Thank you for listening. <laughs>